Good morning, everybody. I know that normally we stand to read the Word of God, and we've gotten away from it because we've been doing the topical parenting series, and so I, we haven't had a direct passage. So we'll go back to our custom, because uh, we're going to focus, uh, again, on many passages, but this is probably the most important one for today. So let's just stand and read Psalm 32 together as a church. Uh, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silence about my sin, my bone, my body washed away, or sorry, wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever of heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with a song's deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with, with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise it will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. This is a very powerful psalm. And any of us who understand where we've been in life, where maybe our, our lives have sort of fallen into tra trappings of sin, where we just felt like totally condemned and helpless, Lord, we have a lot to learn from David here in terms of the way you reconcile with us and our, your arms are open to us, Lord, to, to restore that relationship. And may uh, today as we look at the, the last piece of your uh, word regarding parenting, that we uh, learn how to understand you as a reconciling God and someone who reaffirms uh, your love to us on a constant basis. So we pray that our hearts are open as parents to hear your word today. And those who are single, that who are Looking forward to children, um, that the, again, the Spirit will uh, work in their lives too to give them preparedness for what lies ahead in their lives. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, believe it or not, uh, compared to the other sermon series I've done on the other pillars, uh, this one will be relatively quick. Um, you know, one, we did one full sermon on sacrificial love, five sermons, I believe, on discipline, and now we'll do one sermon on reconciliation. I think I'll finish that today. However, we might even have time to move into the, to the final piece, which is shepherding the heart of your child. And that's a sort of like a, a subsection we're going to do at the end. And I'll do a special section on teenagers, raising teenagers. Uh, <laughs> I heard a smirk, so I figure I guess someone's awake. <laughs> Raising teenagers will be my last uh, section because where you know people like the Remples are not too far away, and I know the jeans they're right in the mix, and Gigi's pretty close too. So we've got a few. We're approaching those ages, and for what I, what I hear from parents, at the time goes quickly. So uh, we'll be all having teenagers in this church pretty soon, <laughs> sooner than we may want. <laughs> so, all right. What's interesting about this uh, third pillar is I've renamed it. Uh, I used to call it, I was calling, calling it Godly Reconciliation, but after studying it, I didn't feel that the term fit. So I'm gonna, I renamed it this, 
And I'll explain to you in this sermon why it's titled the way it is. So the third pillar is reaffirmation of love and what I would call hope for reconciliation. Or another way of saying it is uh, a pursuit of reconciliation. What's interesting about this pillar in parenting is that Proverbs doesn't contain any wisdom on it. There's no, there's no Proverbs literature for wisdom on, on this section. So it, in discipline, there's tons. Remember, it took five sermons to go through it, and they're all in the category of Proverbs. So there's nothing in Proverbs about this. So in order to understand this pillar, we have to turn primarily to the Old Testament, and God's dealing with Israel, and some sections of the New Testament, and God's dealing with us as New Testament believers. So we have to look at God's dealing with Israel to see how this practically plays out as a parent in our lives. Because remember, God was a father to Israel, and he saw them as, uh, well, he called Israel, you're my firstborn son. When he went to Exodus, in Exodus, when he went to Pharaoh, he said, let my firstborn son go. So he used a personal language to describe his relationship to Israel. But in this sense, um, it's very similar to self-sacrificial love in that, again, we use God's model with Israel to understand the concepts of how to do this. But here's the main point you want to take away from today, and then I'll expound on this point for 20 minutes or whatever it's going to take to go through it. Here's the, the key. You need to make sure that your child knows that there's a place for them to start over relationally with you after discipline has occurred. You have to let your child know there's a place for them to start over with you relationally after discipline has occurred. Why? Because God, again, did this with Israel. And he does that with us as well as New Testament Christians. You see, when Israel sinned against God, he did discipline them. He didn't have a choice but to do so. But here's the key. He never left Israel in that state. So he didn't punish them and then ignore them. He, he would discipline them. But after discipline, he always opened his arms to them and saying, please, uh, come to me and let's make this right between one another. I'm, I'm open to reconciliation. Will you come and restore that relationship? He always pursued reconciliation and he wanted that to occur. And it would occur with Israel through confession and repentance. So they would sin against him. He disciplined him. He said, I'm open to reconciliation. What do you think? And he said, you have to confess and you have to repent and I will take you back. And what was cool about God is when that relationship was restored with Israel, it never, it was as if their slate was wiped completely clean, as if the sin had never occurred in the first place. So they could sin in idolatry, they could sin in the most heinous crimes. If they would come back and repent and confess, he would accept them and renew the relationship as if, as if it had never, the, the, the sin had never occurred. He didn't forget but he treated them later in the reconciliation as if the sin had never occurred. The value of his relationship then was intact, no matter what the severity. And I want to give you some great examples from Scripture. Again, I, I never want you to think that this is my wisdom. I have to, of course, relate personal wisdom or personal experience to illustrate points, but I want you to see this in the Scripture and be convinced of it from yourselves. But look at Malachi 3.7, and it's on the PowerPoint, so you don't have to turn there. But let me just give you the context before we read this. Uh, the priesthood in Israel at the time was completely corrupt. They're abusing the temple. Uh, they've departed from the law of Moses. And they're divorcing their wives unfaith un unlawfully to go get Gentile women. So it's wrapped with like abuse of the law, abuse of the temple. The whole religious leadership's corrupt. And they're divorcing for, for just unlawful reasons. So it was basically trading in for a better model. 
So it has nothing to do with uh, the, the character of a woman or if they'd commit adultery on them. It's just absolute uh, heinous. It was the culture we have today, <laughs> basically. All right, but look at Malachi 3.7. His words to Israel during this time. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and not, not kept them. Listen to God's voice or heart. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. An openness for reconciliation, even though he has to discipline them. I love uh, Hosea 14, 1-5. The context in Hosea is Israel's in severe idolatry. Um, he's, uh, they're just completely abandoned God and they're just full-on worshipping all the gods of Canaan, all these false gods. And in Hosea, look at the, what the prophet says to Israel. He's speaking on God's behalf. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall, but take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all of our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. This is God's response in, to, to the prophet. I will, hear their, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. So again, like this amazing picture of God in the midst of idolatry saying, return and I'll be your God. My arms are open. And if you do, I will heal this relationship. I will love you freely despite all the idolatry you've done. And my favorite example comes from David. And David's powerful because we just read it in Psalm 32. This guy's a monster in the Old Testament for faith. I don't have to tell you guys about his life. I mean, but I mean, probably where he gets sort of known for his monster faith is after being a shepherd boy, no one will fight Goliath. And he comes in as a young man and decides to take him on. And his full confidence in God. You know, Goliath's ramming God down, and he says, you know what, my God will deliver you. How dare you uh, treat my God this way? And he goes and fights Goliath and defeats him. Later on, falls into adultery and murder. You think, how does a guy go from this amazing faith to this, this completely heinous crime and go so sideways? But what's cool is, in Psalm 32, we see David's understanding of the character of God in terms of his ability to want to reconcile with him and his willingness to take him back as if the sin never happened. Look at this in Psalm 32 again. Uh, we read from the NASV. This is an NIV translation because I feel it's easier for, for us to understand. Um, he says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Discipline for... This is the physical experiences that he's feeling from God for, for hiding sin. So this, David recognizes that God's hand was heavy on him. Therefore, his strength was being sapped as in the heat of summer. But God is disciplining him for his sin. And he's it's expressing in physical ways in his body. He's going through anguish. But then he says this. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquities. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And watch this. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So he understands that if he comes clean with him, that God will open up his arms in reconciliation and take him back, as if it never happened in the first place. But here's the verses I love. This is the verse that I love, and it's in verse 1 and 2. Look at his understanding of the character of God. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
So I've sinned, I've committed murder and adultery, and if I come clean with you, you will not count my sin against me. You will forgive me and restore the relationship like nothing happened. God does the same for us as New Testament believers. When we sin against Him, He disciplines us, but He leaves an option open for reconciliation. If we confess and repent, the intimacy of the relationship we shared with Him before we sin is restored as if to its original state. He wipes your slate clean and gives us a starting over point. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Lord, He is for faithful to forgive us of our sins. Why bring this up? Well, I think you can see the parallels here with parenting. Many of us have come from a home and a background where we didn't have this operating like this in our houses. Let me get, maybe I can ring some bells for some of you. And if you have been raised in this environment, opposite this environment, then I'm super grateful for you. And you're lucky and blessed. But if you haven't, you can understand what I'm about to say. But after you were disciplined, there was sometimes you never experienced any pursuit by your parents to reconcile. So they came in hard on you, uh, disciplined you, whether it was, even if it was right to do so, but they never restored with you, and they never reaffirmed their love for you. So the treatment afterwards to you showed that you were still unforgiven for the, the sin that you did. You felt unforgiven, and you, under, start, you began to understand that disobedience required further, further punishment. <laughs> Maybe your parents didn't let it go. They kept bringing it up over and over how you failed in this area. So you sinned in category A, and for days on end, category A keeps get brought up, brought up, brought up. And you're like, just let it go, mom. Let it go, dad. Perhaps they gave you silent treatment. So they came in and came in hard, and then they started to punish you through extra silent treatment, and you never knew why they were being so quiet, but you tied it back to the sin. They ignored you. Maybe their body language showed disgust towards you for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Or maybe they continued further punishment by compounding more restrictions and so on and so forth. What does that do to us as people? And what it, it would, would leave us feeling worthless, hopeless, and angry. And some of us live with those pains as adults today. Because our parents never reconciled and had their open, never reaffirmed their love to us, never gave us, gave us a starting over point after discipline occurred. So as parents, we need to imitate what God did with Israel and what God did with David. After discipline is administered, you don't end it there. You reaffirm your love for your kids and let them know you desire to reconcile. You can do that through physical touch, right? You can do that through words of affirmation. But here's the key. Remember that when you offer reconciliation, you, um, just because you offer it doesn't mean it's going to be received. Right? Why would that be? Well, it takes two to reconcile. It takes two to reconcile. So God would say to Israel, I'm open for reconciliation. Israel says, don't want him. I'm out. Right? He says to David, I'm open for reconciliation. David says, I want it. I'm in. Okay? With your children, you can offer reconciliation to them. Say, discipline is done. I want to restore with you, but they may reject it. You can't guarantee that they're going to always accept it. I'll give you an example of how um, just because you offer it and you want to forgive them, or you, you do forgive them, that reconciliation still doesn't mean that it's... Uh, yeah, you can offer forgiveness, but reconciliation doesn't fully occur until the children receive your willingness to do so. The children have to embrace you back. A great example is Jesus on the cross. 
He's been crucified. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So does that mean that when those people died, they went to heaven to be with God? Of course not. Why not? Because even though he was forgiving them for what they're doing, they didn't want his forgiveness. <laughs> they had to say to God, okay, I, I will confess and repent, and I will receive this forgiveness that you have to offer me. So God, Jesus says, I forgive them, but reconciliation didn't occur just because he offered forgiveness. Reconciliation only occurred with the thief on the cross. Because when, they, when he says, Father, forgive them for they know what they're doing, then the thief on the cross says, remember me when, I go, uh, when you go to heaven. And Jesus says, I will do so. But he comes clean with Jesus when he's on the cross. And this is why we named the pillar. I didn't, I, at first, my title for the whole, all these weeks was uh, Godly Reconciliation. Well, reconciliation doesn't necessarily happen unless your child is willing to do so. So what we have to do is just reaffirm our love and we pursue reconciliation and we hope for reconciliation. So what do you do then if they don't want to reconcile with you? And why wouldn't they want to reconcile with you? That's another question. So what do you do if they shut you down? The answer is it depends on how they shut you down. If they do it in a defiant way, like, I hate you, never come, you know, that kind of language, or they attempt to hit you when you go to hug them, then you have no choice but to discipline them again. Because, but it's for a different reason, though. So if they go defiant on you in the reconciliation, you have to follow through again with another discipline. If they do it in an undefiant way, meaning you reach out to them and they kind of just sort of stay solemn like this and they don't reach out their arms to you, but they're not defiant, then you can't discipline them. But now, at that point, you have to do an inward reflection of yourself. And this, is, this is what I call standing in the mirror with like, naked <laughs> before God. There are two likelihoods if a child, again, there can be odd, odd, odd times, but if it's a pattern that they won't want to receive you, then you want to look at two things. One, have you disciplined them in anger and brought exasperation into their life? We looked at that last week in the sermon, or two weeks ago, the effects of de dealing with anger and exasperation. Likely, if we've come at them in anger or exasperation, they, they know that it's, uh, they, they'll be shut down. And so you have to do a reflection and go, is there something I need to come clean with God for? And I have to restore my walk with God and then go back to my kid and ask them to forgive me for the way I disciplined them? Or... Even another option is this, that it's just demonstrated to you that you haven't been, a, or I haven't been, a self-sacrificial parent enough in their life. Because self-sacrificial parents um, will, will have less likelihood of being rejected. Because you've always demonstrated to them that you play on their terms, you love them on their terms, so when you discipline, it's not the norm. So the child goes, huh, I got disciplined. That's not how daddy normally treats me. So I'm in. I want, this, I want to recover this relationship. So again, if, if we get rejected, it's either because we're not being self-sacrificial, that's one potential, or we've done it in anger, and those other potential. So those are gut checks for us as parents. And you have to understand, we do this in marriage too, right? In terms of like, sometimes a kid just needs more time to think about before they want to reconcile. We do it in marriage. I'll give you, you guys will all relate to this who are married. Okay? Has your spouse ever offended you in your whole marriage? You guys are all not going like this, so good for you. Right? Has there any been a time when they've come up to you and said, Will you forgive me? I'm sorry for what I've done. 
and you said, and you, at that time, accept the forgiveness, but don't want to hug them? In other words, I, so you, say, you say, I forgive, okay, I, I hear you, honey, I forgive, I, no problem, it's all good, I'll forgive you. You say, but you say, I just need a little bit more time to work this through. You go off in your room and you won't hug. And you need time to think about it, to get the courage up to go back to your spouse and say, okay, I'm ready now, and you hug them. So why would we want or force our kids to hug us if they don't want to hug right away if they're not being defiant? You do it in your marriage. You're basically saying, honey, I need more time. But you cognitively can work that through. Your children can't cognitively work that through if they're really small. They just know that they need more time, but they can't express it. So you give your child the space, but you keep pursuing, keep pursuing the reconciliation so that eventually that can, and so that they can eventually come back to you and restore the relationship. <clears throat> and this reaffirmation of love and openness to reconciliation looks different depending on age. This is the hard thing about parenting is like when we when we speak truths, it's like it looks different for toddler, five-year-old, ten-year-old, teenager. Like there's just so many applications. That's why a lot of this has to be solved over coffees and one-on-one -on -one conversations. But I could, I'll just go quickly through the stages. Reaffirmation of love and openness to reconciliation looks different depending on age. If it's a toddler, they can't confess sin. Right? They can't speak. So your focus at that point is just to get them to obey you and to learn to live under submission and of authority. However, they can, what you look for since they can't confess is repentance. A child, when if you go to discipline them for something they've done, if they stop that behavior, they're showing repentance. They're not returning to that, that behavior. So in those times, you could offer reconciliation because the behavior stopped. If it hadn't stopped, you have to discipline again. But the thing is, if you, if you look for repentance in a one-year-old or a two-year-old or, or a three-year-old, that then you can just say to the you go up to your kids and through a physical touch or a words of affirmation, offer them that reconciliation. And usually, well, virtually, I think every time, if you've been a self-sacrificial parent, they will gladly receive you. And you didn't do it in anger. As a toddler, they get they get older and they become a child that's young. Then confession and repentance will need to become part of proper reconciliation. And so what it would look like is they would you have them confess the sins that they did against mom and dad, and probably have them reconcile with the offended person or party that they hurt. So if it's a sibling or an auntie or an uncle or a friend or whatever. But again, you get them to work through that in confession, and again look for repentance, so they stop that behavior in that moment. The child becomes older, maybe around the like age of like 8, 9, 10. Again, also confession and repentance needs to be directed. But now you can move it more towards God. See, I mean, Dan and I had this conversation on, uh, at Ikea the other day. Like we talked about like, confessing to God versus confession to parents. If you tell a, a four-year-old or a three-year-old, okay, boys, you need to confess to Jesus for your sins. They go, I'm sorry, Jesus. They have absolutely no foggy idea who in the world you're talking about. My son intermixes Optimus Prime with Jesus in his prayers. So he has no foggy clue who Optimus Jesus is, right? What I'm, saying, what I'm saying is, but they know who mom and dad is. So if you haven't confessed their sin to mom and dad, they understand authority. And then as they get older, you translate them to Jesus as they have the cognitive capacity to understand who God is. Because ultimately, all sin is against God. And you're draining your child to understand that they're under his authority, right? So as it becomes older and mature, confession and repentance needs to be directed more towards God. 
and ultimately the sins against him and include the offended party. And then as the parent, you're probably the offended party because a lot of it's against you. So initially it's confession at a young age to mom and dad and then whoever they hurt outside of mom and dad. When they're older, like, like Josiah's age and stuff like that, it's confession against, to God and against uh, the offended party and it could be mom and dad at that point or the sibling or whatever. As a teenager, all sin is fully against the Lord. Right? And part of, and reason is, is when you disobey your parents, that is ultimately sinning against God. Remember Ephesians and Colossians says, children, you, to honor your mom and dad. So when you leave home, you don't have to honor them anymore in terms of obedience. But when you're under their roof, you have to. That's what God desires. So if you rebel against your parents, you're sinning against God's design for your relationship. Again, so if your child's open to your reconciliation, then you affirm them through physical touch, like a hug, a cuddle, a rub on the back, and through words of affirmation. And you tell them how you love them and so on and so forth. And I like Denise's line with my boys. She, uh, she's, she just, I told you this a couple weeks ago. She just says to them at this age, you don't say this to your teenager, but <laughs> at his age, she just says, uh, it's all finished, it's all done, it's all better. And it gives, uh, while she's hugging the kids. And the kids know there's a starting over point. But by that time, again, they've opened their arms and they're sitting on their knees, so they've clearly embraced the, the reconciliation. So if they accept it, you're reconciled. If they don't accept it, you're not reconciled yet. So what do you do when they don't reconcile? You keep reaffirming your love for them. You keep telling them, just like God does, He says to them, listen, I love you, Israel. I love you guys. But please, you can't operate like this way in life. Return to me. Hey, I hate your idolatry, but I love you. Return to me. Hey, I hate your adultery, but I love you. Return to me. So you go to your kids. Listen, I know we're not reconciled yet, but listen, I, there, I'm always open to it. I love you like crazy. This is not what, this is not what it is to, to operate as a Dexter in the family, or it's not the way you express love to God. And I want you to, to operate in this way and that way. And you, you just keep reaffirming your love for them as a person, but you don't excuse their behavior. And you keep pursuing this option for reconciliation. And again, use the self-examination first to see if it's your issue and not your children's for why they rejected you and why they would reject me. Because what's at stake often in these instances, if it's not your issue, it's your child's heart. It's the heart of your child. And that brings us to our next section. And I will go into a, a little bit of it and we'll... Instead of doing like a long, long one hour and a, one hour, 50 minute sermon, I'll probably just stop after about 10 minutes and save the rest for next week and finish next week with the section on uh, the heart, part two. But let's do heart, the heart of the matter, uh, part one. And I want to talk about shepherding the heart of your child now because this is so important, so important. Don't answer these questions out loud, but... If I were to ask you, what do you think the goals are in Okotoks, or Canada for that matter, for secular families, for their children? What are the primary goals for people who don't have a relationship with God? What do you think their goals are for their children in terms of family upbringing? Let me suggest a few. Um, for a lot of people, a good education. They gotta get the best grades possible so they can get the best the best universities possible, so they can get the best grades possible, so they can get the best jobs possible. And if they arrive at the best education with the best school and they get the best jobs, they've done well as mom and dad. 
their evaluation is their grades and their schooling and their, if they get into Harvard and so on and so forth. For many, it's special skills. Um, if my child's the, the best athlete, best at Taekwondo, best at soccer, best at gymnastics, best at trampoline, best at hockey, uh, best musician, the best artist, and gets these special skills, and I've done a really good job as a mom and a dad. A lot of them don't care as long as their children grow up to be happy. All I care about is that my child grows up to be happy. However, whatever that means. Another, for other people, it's they want the person to grow up with a good self-esteem and to be a good person. So as long as you feel good about who you are and you treat others well, then you, then the, as a parent, you think, well, I've succeeded as a as a parent because my children feel good about themselves, and you know, for the most part, they're self, uh, they're pretty good with the public, and they're, they're they manage to like sort of like contribute to society. What about Christian families? <clears throat> what about yours? What's your goals for your children? Is it that they are well behaved? So you're looking for them to be polite? Do you want them to have really good manners? You want to get them saved? So your, your number one goal is that they have to say the sinner's prayer at six years old, eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. Get them to Bible college. Well, these are not bad things in and of themselves. You want to look at something Jesus said 2,000 years ago. And it's worth as a church turning to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Matthew twenty-two, starting at verse thirty-seven. Actually, start at verse thirty-six. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Well, you know what? Let's just start thirty-four because it's it's a good running. <laughs> There's something to be said for being prepared, you know. It's, uh, it helps a lot in the smoothness of your sermons. <laughs> Start at 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and all the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we align ourselves with God's word in Matthew 22 as parents, our end goal for our kids needs to be this. We raise them in a way that sets the table and enables them to fulfill this commandment. We want to raise them in a way that they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and love their neighbor as themselves. That's primary. If this is the case, then we as parents have a lot more to do than merely telling our children what to do and focusing on their behavior. I'll say that again. If this is the case, we have a lot more to do than merely telling our children what to do and then evaluating the character and how they listen to us. They're going to need much more than that. 
What they're going to need, if they're going to love God with, uh, love, uh, love in Matthew, he says, love the Lord with your heart. If you're going to love your, have your children love the Lord with their heart and love the neighbor with their heart, they're going to need a heart transplant. It's going to take much more than quadruple bypass surgery to get your child to do that. It's going to take much more than that to get my child to do that. Why would that be? Remember Proverbs? Your child's heart starts from a place of? Yeah. Okay. And Jeremiah 17.9 gives us a much more detailed picture of what foolishness looks like. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In our culture, we have a wonderful line. You just need to follow your heart. If you follow your heart, then you're doing, you, that's what you want to do. If you follow the heart, you're going to have what's happening in Syria. You're going to have what's happening, why, why, why we have like um, the, the, the marital situations we have, the, the orphanages we've had to have, the, 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 like all the single parents, the, 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 the court systems, the jails. That's all because the heart is the sick. It's not because we're following our heart and it's going well for us as a culture. And here's the thing about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. Your child, everything they say, and everything they do in action flows out of the heart. And again, that's all fine and wonderful if the heart starts from a place bent towards serving God, but their heart starts from a place of foolishness, deceitfulness, and wickedness. <laughs> Listen, You've never had to teach your child to say no. Have you ever had to ask your child to say no and teach them, you know what, you should actually throw a tantrum right now because that's probably a good thing to do. Or you guys should, like, you should say, I hate you when I do that. Like, you don't have to teach them any of that stuff. It's natural. It's so natural. I think our children think their first name is no uh, because that's all they hear in the first three years of their life. That's not because the heart starts from a place of, of wonderful, um, uh, you know, Disneyland uh, cartoon characters. And Jesus understood that our hearts determined, determined our speech and actions himself. Look at Mark 7, 20. Jesus was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that what is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of men, Proceed evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. You notice all those categories are action-based? They're not speech, they're actions. So he says, uh, from within, from within, out of the heart proceeds these things. So you don't look, the, the peripheral things that you see in behavior are merely a reflection of the inner heart of what's going on in a human being. He does the same with speech in Matthew 12, 34. He says to them, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, basically, uh, how can you, being evil, speak of what is good? For the mouth speaks of what that is which filled in the heart. You see, since the scripture tells us that our children's sinful behavior is a direct reflection of what is going on in their hearts, it takes more than correcting behavior if we're going to produce children that will orient their lives towards serving God and others. Let me say that again. Since scripture tells us that our children's sinful behavior is a direct reflection of what is going on in their hearts, it's going to take more than correcting behavior if we're going to produce children that will orient their, orient their lives towards serving God and serving others. 
Again, don't get me wrong, not that we don't expect obedience from our children and expect them to behave properly, but we can't leave it there. You can't leave it there. We need to look deeper than the peripheral issues that we see, and we need to uncover and expose the attitudes of their hearts which have led to the sinful behavior in the first place. You have to uncover the attitudes and expose the behavior that led to it in the first place. So we need to, un- we have to, in other words, expose more than just the what of the sin, but the why. You're looking to get out the why out of them. But don't ask them why. We know why. They're, they're foolish. But what I mean by ask, getting the why is we try to uncover their motivations behind what they did and why, and why, they, why they feel that was the right way of act, acting and speaking. I'll finish with this by answering this question. How do we go about accomplishing this? How do we start to do this? We address their hearts through gospel-focused parenting. Gospel-focused parenting. By the time our kids leave our homes, they need to have God's word and his purposes for the lives so embedded in them that, and so internalized and deep in within them that when they're faced with life decisions and situations, both publicly and privately, they will know where to turn and how to apply it to every situation and context they face. We need the same as adults, don't we? That's why we do church the way we do. But when we do this, we give their children the principles to live by because they will know the why in terms of what God wants them to do and why he wants them to live in this particular way. But here's the key. If the internalization of the gospel is what, is going to take to, what it's going to take to change the hearts of our kids, it's going to be imperative that we know it too. We need to know it too if we're going to help our children internalize it in their own hearts. I would like to keep going actually on this, but uh, I'm going to leave it for today and deal with this aspect of uh, the sermon to finish next week. But I want to start next week by talking about the gospel basics. What part of the gospel do we need to internalize for ourselves that we have to teach to our children? And then I want to walk through um, the categories of life that I think are important for your kids at certain ages. And I want to work, walk through also um, a practical example of shepherding without the gospel focus and shepherding with the gospel focus. So I'll give you a, a scenario with a kid, and I'll give you illustration A and illustration B, and you'll see the difference between shepherding the heart through the gospel and not. And what's interesting about situation A is it won't be wrong in terms of, like, there will be, it'll be no sin in it. There'll be, like, you'll, if you do these steps, you'll still be effective as a parent, but you'll miss the mark in terms of orientating their hearts toward God. A lot of people grew up in homes without Christian homes that produced pretty uh, um, respectable people in the community, right? I mean, as, as far as, you know, yeah, we, 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 you all have friends that are good people. They'll open the door for you at the mall and they'll, they'll even cut your grass for you when you're on holidays and look after your house if you're gone. There's lots of good friends like that, but their hearts aren't orientated towards God. And their role of view definitely isn't Christian. So we're going to go into those things next week. But you see, now when you read Deuteronomy 6, doesn't, don't, this will make a lot more sense. Because Deuteronomy says, Deuteronomy says this in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
Okay, there you go again, their heart. With your soul and your mind, or your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and they shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And even though I hate this saying, I don't know why it bugs me so much, but we have this thing in our culture, 24-7, 365. Right? That's what he's saying. 24-7, 365, you are imparting the gospel to, to your children. In every single situation, context you can find. And again, I'm going to suggest why it's so important next week and illustrate when those of us who lived in Christian homes <coughs> may have still not come from gospel-focused parenting. Because it does happen. It does happen. So let's leave it at that. And like I said, I'm looking forward to part two. And we will finish uh, the heart of the matter uh, next week.